0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 395 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery, plus many other books as well, but that's the latest one. How are you, Al?
1: Um, I am okay. Uh, which is you know pretty unusual given I'm in the middle of the school holidays but <laughs> I'm pretty good. I've been to Canberra and I've visited the big blockbuster exhibition there at the National Gallery. Oh Rockstar yes. paintings in every how
0: room. was that?
1: It was really good. Um, mm. It's one of those things where COVID actually works in your favour because they can have fewer people in there at a time so oh. you actually get an opportunity to stand in front of sunflowers and you know take in the glory and as I said there's it you know it's it's almost all killer no filler there's a lot of you know there's a lot of celebrity rock star paintings around which is great the boys really enjoyed it as well so we drag them you know we like to drag them through exhibitions every once in a while just to keep their culture up um, mm. And we went to the glassworks because, you know, as we discussed, we've oh, been obsessed, yes. blown away. Um, <laughs> so we went to the glassworks to see it in action, um, and it was one of those situations where it was pretty amazing. It's so hot in there;
2: I can't even yeah. imagine
1: what it's like when you're actually standing in front of those oh. furnaces. Um, but we were watching, you, you know, when you're watching the the show and they're talking about, mm, I think that's a bit gift shop. You know that? Remember that <laughs> conversation that they have? Well, yes. what we were watching was a was a woman um, blowing tumblers for the gift shop I think or, or oh. to send out or whatever and so they were all exquisitely done and all exactly the same which as we know from watching Blown Away mm. is actually not that easy to do to make them all you know uniform um, yes. but it wasn't as exciting as watching them attempt to make a you know a handbag out of <laughs> <laughs> out of woven glass or whatever so um, but yeah Can that was anyone- good it was really good to see
0: If anyone isn't sure what we're talking about, it's this great show on Netflix (laughs) called Blown Away, and we became obsessed independently. And it is a reality show competition. It sounds really twee, but it's everyone I've recommended to who has watched it has loved it. It's a reality show competition about glass blowers, and it's riveting.
1: (laughs) It is riveting, and it's it's um. It's reawakened my interest also in uh, – because, you know, I do like a bit of, um, you know, I like old stuff and old mm. and, and historical. But well, it's reawakened my interest in stained glass as well because that was yes. one of the things I remember from our trip to Europe and also from other trips, you know, in, uh, in previous trips that I've taken was just the uh, the extraordinary stained glass work in some of those um, yes. cathedrals and various places you go that are just amazing. So I've been um, – I've just been doing some research. On
0: stained sure. glass?
1: Yeah. Just oh,
0: because it, I met a lady the worked. other day who mm. that's her thats her uni degree. She studied how to become a stained glass person. Weird, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, very not weird but specific. Do you mean like historically or? No,
0: no, the skill, the, the craft. Oh, no, she's going to do that. No, there's
1: yeah. actually – I'm, and I'm, I've, I've had a complete mental blank – um, and I'm incredibly sorry for this mental blank but there is a lovely woman in our listener community uh, mm-hmm. that I follow on Instagram I think she's from tasmania um mm-hmm. if it's you please wave wildly in the group so that I can yes. acknowledge you she makes stained glass stuff like she often shares wow. her stuff on her Instagram and things like that and um, and it's it's lovely it's and' I'm I've, I've, honestly like i I need a keeper because I can't actually remember her name at the moment but I see you and I see your extraordinary work and I'm just going to wave at you and hope that you recognise yourself and will wave back. Um, But, yeah, no, I'm interested in the history of it. I'm interested Mm. in how it was done in the days that they were building those huge cathedrals and I'm interested in who was involved and I feel like there could be something in that for me for a story at some point in my life. I'm not exactly sure when or what yet
0: but anyway did you do that thing when when you were little where you could buy those packs and you had to fill the the metal kind of thing with glass and you put it in the oven and, and out came your stained glass creation
1: uh, no, I never did it. I think we. Okay. I think. I think it was probably the kind of thing that my parents went because we got various craft kits. You know how yes. you do when you're a kid, you get craft kits out your mm. wazoo. Um, <laughs> we had various ones, and I think a lot of them ended up because none of us was particularly patient or crafty. My sister, my second sister, uh, Maxabella, she's probably about the most crafty of all of us, um, mm. but yeah no I I do remember melting twisty packets in the oven oh yes and making little mini curing things out of them yes, which is kind of similar kind of similar right oh so um, similar anyway <laughs> so that's kind of where I am at the moment and I'm preparing for a, a workshop I'm teaching a workshop um up in Wollongong next week so I'm ah, yes. working on that yeah what's the workshop about it's a it's a one for kids on writing fantasy but um, I suspect it's probably going to be over by the time this comes out so I don't think you need any more detail than that.
0: Cool all right well fantastic (laughs) let's move on then to the world of writing and publishing to the rest of the world of writing and publishing now you have an interesting blog post on your blog don't you Al?
1: I do. I have um, a guest post on my blog uh, at the moment and it is by Lorraine Marwood who is an award-winning poet and author and she has written a post for me, Five Tips for Writing Verse Novels for Children. Cool. And uh, I was really interested in this one because I, I'm fascinated by verse novels. Like to me they're kind of like alchemy and superstructure, you know, blended together into this kind of magical beast. Um mm-hmm not something I've ever attempted not something I'd probably even know where to start with so I'm kind of fascinated by how they come together and and what what you actually need to do to to create one so uh, Lorraine who has a new verse novel out at the moment which is getting a lot of um, you know there's a lot of discussion about a lot of chatter uh is it's called footprints on the moon and it's out through uh, uqp but she's actually written uh four all together four verse novels altogether. and the reason i'm interested in them at the moment is that i feel like they're having a moment um, so last year's cbca book of the year for younger readers was a verse novel by pip harry called the little wave and it is a huge favorite in the your kids next read group um, and if you don't know what the your kids next read group is it's a facebook community uh, that I co-founded with um, Megan Daly who runs, is a book blogger, Children's Books Daily and also um, Alison Rushby who is another middle grade author and there's about 16,000 members and so there's, we get to see a lot of what people are talking about. And verse novels um, and that book in particular have had a huge response in that group over the last, you know, six to 12 months. And then this year's shortlist for the CBCA Book of the Year for younger readers contains two verse novels, uh, Bindi by Curly Saunders and Worse Things by Sally Murphy, which suggests to me that it's a trend that hasn't really gone. Is You know, it's probably it wasn't just a one-off, it's becoming a bit of a thing, a bit of a trend. So I thought, okay, um, I'm going to ask Lorraine to write a post on, you know, on her top tips for writing verse novels for children. And she said um, it's an interesting thing because it's always a challenge, I think, it's always a challenge to uh, distill what you do instinctively into Mm. tips for other people. So she even said to Mm. me that it was quite quite a challenge. And she said that for for her – The magic of the style of writing is the mix of, you know, poetic language, ease of reading and the tension of bringing all the narrative devices together. Um, Mm. And I think it's that ease of reading is one of the things which you know it's a funny thing you might not necessarily think of poetry as being a great thing for reluctant readers but in actual fact they really respond to it because there are fewer words there's a lot of white space Mm -hmm. and in fact one of the tips that Lorraine gives is to is to not underestimate the power of white space like the white space around the text is actually a feature of a verse novel and the scarcity of words allows what is written to be more powerfully received and So they're kind of like um, sort of uh, the text is not dense but Mm. because the use of language is so precise – they're actually very rich and compelling. So they're mm. much more sort of, they're a much deeper read for a reluctant reader than, than you know, some of the stuff that they'd be reading all the time, sort of, you know, illustrated, you know, treehousey y kind of things. These these will give them that sense of achievement of the, of the fewer number of words, but it will take them deeper. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so popular at the moment. Mm. And it surprises me, what kids will grab hold of, and I, I think we've talked about this before, but maybe not. I can't remember who I've discussed this with because I do talk <laughs> about it quite a lot. Um, but Bookboy Junior is—he's fourteen now, but when he was twelve, he was in Year Seven at high school. He came home with Kwame Alexander's *The Crossover*, which is a verse novel about basketball and -hmm. he was like fully into basketball at that point he was out practicing every minute of every day and driving us all crazy with the bouncing Mm -hmm. um but he loved it because it's a it's incredibly good a it's all about something that he's fascinated by fewer words so he really was able to whip through it in about you know an hour or so and I would never have thought to give him poetry ever and yet he picked it up for himself and he loved it and so I think it's something that um is really worth considering for you know if you do have reluctant readers in your house but that's all beside the point let's talk about writing them um so lorraine's has five tips the first one is that you should choose strong words focus on nouns and verbs Mm. so you don't want to make it flowery you don't want a lot of adjective you know stuff going on you want it to be concrete Um, because you want that prose aspect of the story is always, you know, there at the forefront of of what you're doing. Uh, She suggests that you keep your lines short, try to stick to up to maximum of nine words per line. Um, And as she said, sometimes you just need one word on the line which will draw out the tension change the rhythm um and bring the reader you know through the story um every word counts like this is not somewhere there's no you don't have a page of description uh in a verse novel you've got to make every word work really really hard um and of course you are writing a story but you have to if you use all of the attributes of poetry you know, imagery, five senses, metaphor, detail, sound, dialogue, use all of those things and it will really bring that story, you know, to life. The poetry is the painterly aspect that you're putting over the top of a really solid, that's why I say alchemy and superstructure because that's what they feel like to me. Mm. Um, And, of course, the thing with a verse novel is, you know, it's poetry Um, and poetry is always best when you, read it out loud when you hear it that's you know it's like if you're studying Shakespeare at school it makes no sense at all until someone reads it out loud to you or you have it you know like acted out in front of you and then you can see that it's a conversation it's not just a whole bunch of iambic pentameter driving you crazy you know um so you want to be able to read it out loud because it's that it's that sort of that swing and that rhythm that really brings the story to life Um, so The other thing is, bonus tip, is that there are so many great verse novelists in that sort of children's and YA field at the moment and, of course, you know, like the the Read Widely uh, tip is the big tip that every author is always going to give you. Uh, But she suggests, you know, some other great Australian authors to try as well. Uh, Stephen Herrick has been uh, writing verse novels for a long time, award-winning verse novels. Sally Murphy has written several. Caterpill is another one. Uh, She has a book called The Bully on the Bus, which – um, sell you know, sells internationally really, really well. She's a, she, um, I know that it's available in the US and it's very, very popular. Cheryl Clark, Curly Saunders and, of course, mm-hmm. Pip Harry, who won last year's CBCA. So read as many as you can get your hands on to get an idea of how they work because they are kind of, you know, an interesting blend of, of many, many things.
0: And what age group would you say that most verse novels are? targeting
1: I don't think there's a I don't think that there's one age group you can write verse I'm pretty sure there's probably verse novels out there for adults I haven't read any but I'm sure they're Mm -hmm. there um the ones I'm talking about here are mostly Mm -hmm. middle grade uh so they would be sort of eight to twelve um but there there are verse novels across all age groups Kwame Alexander's I'm pretty sure it's his he's got one I'm pretty sure it's him um about a kid who gets into a lift with a gun and it's about Mm. uh, I think it's called is it him gosh I'm having a complete mental breakdown here Um, it's a great great story uh, about a kid who gets in to a lift with a gun, and he's going to revenge his brother. Like it's a set in a, you know, in, in a very rough neighbourhood, and it's intense. 13 floors down. And mm. the 13 floors down is him thinking about what he's going to do, whether he's going to do it or whether he's not. What are the repercussions going to be? It's extraordinarily powerful, and I'm going to have to look up exactly who wrote it now because I've had a mental breakdown. <laughs> um, but it's it's that's amazing. so intense. What an incredibly so, intense YA, premise. Yeah. Yeah, Just oh it is. Fantastic. It's extraordinary. Anyway, so you talk while I find out who that was. Okay. Well, I
0: think that that's a really good post. You can check it out on Allison's blog, which of course is alisontate.com, and that's 2 L's and T A I T. And in case you missed it, it was uh, written by Lorraine Marwood, whose latest verse novel is Footprints on the Moon. So, it's um some really good tips there. And as Alison mentioned, it's um it seemed to be the zeitgeist at the moment. I'm akin, I mean, verse novels have always existed, of course, but they are certainly gaining more prominence and coming to the fore, especially, as Alison mentioned, um, increasingly popping up on the CBCA lists. So um, check them out. All right
1: you can stop talking now because I found <laughs> it and of course it is another brilliant US um, author who uh, is also incredibly popular with my boys um, a guy called Jason Reynolds uh, mm. the, the book is called Long Way Down and it's an extraordinary book mm. um, and another one another YA one which we have which was also incredibly popular here is The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo um, which is another fantastic you know fantastic book I uh, think there's a lot of them out there and I, I also <laughs> wonder whether or not the um, the sort of prevalence of hip-hop and rhythm and blues music across, oh, yes. you know, is is also something that, that is driving it as well because I know mm. that Book Boy Jr. in particular loves, you know, hip-hop, rap music um, and I think that that's another reason why he loves um, that kind of writing as well.
0: Fantastic. All right. Check out that blog post. We have another link that is really interesting for you. It's called Six Creative Ways to Name Your Fictional Characters. This is a good one because you can get ideas for names from all sorts of places and I've often heard of um, authors getting ideas from whether it's just from their family or whether it's somebody that, that they've seen in a movie or whether they've looked up the phone book at random. Um, but uh, what do you like about this post, Al?
1: Oh, I just I, – look, I'm fascinated by names. <laughs> I, I it's They're a feature of, of sort of all of my – Writing, I've always been – did you remember I used to write those – I used to do the features every year with uh, Mark McCrindle about the most popular baby names in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been fascinated by what people name their kids and Mm -hmm. the names that come to the top each year and why and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm the kind of person that's always had baby name books on my shelf even, you know, like well before I had children because um, I like to name my character. Yeah, because I like to name my characters um, – I like to name my characters by names that mean something about, you know, a, a major characteristic of theirs. Uh, so, when I'm looking for a name for a character, I, I look up a names that mean well, – I mean, these days it's so much easier because I can just Google that. Yeah. Um, but I used to have to look it up in a book. Um, mm-hmm. I used to – you know, so you, I'd be Googling a names that meant, you know, certain things. Or – you know, looking up the top ten names from 1974 to name a particular character of a certain yeah. age. If I was writing a contemporary book, or um, because I write, you know, almost history stuff, I'm I'm looking for for names that sound historical, or you know, fit that sort of um, yeah. medieval world. Because uh, you you want names to they have to fit the world, and they also have to fit together. Yeah, you can't have one called Tracy and one called. Maven, you know what I mean? Mm, like it doesn't, mm. just doesn't really work. So you kind of got to, you've got to find it, you've got to create a family of names that mm. are even, that all sort of go together and mean different things. So um, yeah, no names. And don't are,
0: have Tracy and Terry because it's confusing.
1: Oh, see, that's, that's the thing I, so I often find names changing in my novels, not the main mm. characters, but the, because, you know, if you're naming a community, you've got a village going on, you've got yeah. a lot of names. You don't necessarily yeah. like, they're not necessarily all going to be, you know, celebrity names, but they're, you've got to name people. You've got to put, you know, so you can't just keep calling them the butcher or, you know, whatever. So you've got to have names. And what, I, what I'll often find when I read through um, and do my first edit is that, you know, every second character in the village has a name starting with an A. Or, you know, I don't know why, but you're sort of like I don't get beyond that section of my of my you know name catalogue in my head or something. Um, so I have to go through and change things. And if I can't think of a name, and I'm sure we've talked about this in our almost 390 million episodes, um, if I can't think of a name for a character, you know, the butcher or the whatever, or mm-hmm. even sometimes a main character, I just call them Fred and then fix it in oh, the fix next lady.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah. So
1: always have I always have like a ba- a name that I go back to that I know when I go through is is the default name, not the actual name. But mm. um, I got myself into a real mess with that with one of my map makers because I had two characters. And they were both minor characters and I hadn't realized that I'd already used the Fred. and so then I had these two characters called Fred and oh. they were different characters but oh yeah, like I, honestly that was that wasn't a good day. Um, but anyway, so yeah because you want something you can easily search and replace.
0: Yes, definitely. Yeah. So on this post, which is on The Right Life and it's written by Andre Clayton, some of the suggestions are to use a name generator because there are many online or the old-fashioned way, what Alison was talking about, uh, baby name books. Um, but there's also he suggested what we have known as getting your porn star name, <laughs> uh-huh. use Fido and your street, in other words, your pet's name and then your street's name uh, as the last name. So what would your, uh, so yes, well, we won't name the name of your street. So I would
1: <laughs> never use this because this for me is a Facebook meme generator for people to steal your data. Yes, so they find out what your so passwords are. So no, yes. I would never, ever use you that. Do not do that. Do not um, do that it, one. um, but, I mean, <laughs> I guess if you put it in a book, people aren't going to know, but still none the, nonetheless. Um, but I think combining the names of uh, – he suggests combining the names of your favourite authors, but I would uh, – I sometimes will use a name that's come up, you know, like having kids is great because you mm-hmm. uh, meet so many kids and they yes. have classrooms full of kids. And so I would never, ever put – the first name and the last name together but sometimes you can take one kid that the, that they knew in grade 2 and combine that kid with a kid that they knew in year 7 and come up with a you know with a different name altogether um so sometimes i do that they had a oh that's right um one of them and i can't remember which one it was had a kid in their class called dash something or other oh. and um i loved it i remember thinking i'm going to use that some at some point but i haven't quite come across the right book for dash and right. his last name yet, yeah. so but he'll turn up at some point. Hopefully There's also long- um,
0: that the 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 author Sydney Bauer, who is otherwise known as Kimberly Scott, mm. um, but when she started writing crime or you know thriller type legal thrillers um, she wanted a action sounding name so she took Sydney from Sydney Bristow from Alias you know who Jennifer Garner, yeah, yeah. it was Jennifer Garner's character and Jack Bauer from 24 and she yeah. ended up with Sydney Bauer.
1: Sydney Bauer there you go mm. and there are also like if you're writing particularly uh, fantasy and medieval sort of stuff there are some great name generators sites mm. that you can just You know, that you can just, I mean, I would never use a name that was actually generated by the site, but I might use the first name from one bit and the second name from somewhere else. Like it's, um, I think it's, it's about bringing all sorts of different factors together for me.
0: Yeah. And one thing that some people, some authors do is they auction off the right to name a character in their
1: book. Yes, which is a fun way to, you know, for a fundraising for a charity or something yeah. like that. It's a really a really fun thing to do.
2: Um, yeah. Anyway,
1: I think I just think naming your characters is so important that yes. you know any any way that might take you into a slightly different creative way of thinking about it is not a bad thing. And that's why I thought we should discuss the post, uh, which cool. you will find on therightlife.com. Six creative ways to name your fictional characters by Andre Clayton.
0: Yep, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well. Now, if you're a writer of historical fiction, you will love our brand new course launching this week. I've gone through every word of it. I absolutely love it. Historical fiction is a self-paced course. Packed full of insights, guidance and tools, the tools are incredible, to help you research and craft your stories in a way that's authentic and captivating. It's been created by best-selling historical fiction author, Pamela Freeman, whose historical fiction novels are under Pamela Hart. And will act like a flashlight as you explore past events, characters and settings. Showing you how to approach your research and bring historical details to life on the page. So it's also got lots of videos where we walk you through how to actually find specific pieces of information from a whole host of fantastic resources. We've taken the thinking out of it for you and it's so practical and so useful. If you want to find out more, go to writercenter.com.au slash historical and uh, that's writercenter.com dot com dot au slash historical for a limited time we will also have this amazing course available at a special launch price so get in now to register your interest or to purchase the course because it's only going to be available upon launch so fantastic course historical fiction Now, let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of The Ripping Tree, which is the new novel from the internationally best-selling author and well-known columnist at The Australian, Nikki Gemmell. And... You have your chance to win one of three copies one of three copies. It's early eighteen hundreds and Thomasina Tre- Trelora is on her way to the colonies. her fate to be married to a clergyman she's never met as the Australian coastline comes into view, a storm wrecks the ship and leaves her lying on the rocks near death. She's saved by an Aboriginal man who carries her to the door of a grand European house, Willowbray. Tom is now free to be whoever she wants to be, Thomasina Tom, and a whole new life opens up to her. But as she's drawn deeper into the intriguing life of this grand estate, she discovers that things aren't quite as they seem. She stumbles across a horrifying secret and realises she may have exchanged one kind of prison for another. The Ripping Tree is an intense, sharp shiver of a novel, unsettling, audacious, thrilling and unputdownable.
2: Ooh. There you
0: go. Yes, very exciting from Nikki Gemmel. So that is from – at uh, you can enter at writercentre.com.au slash win. Uh, that's writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 19th of April. Now, Al, mm. are you ready for the word of the week?
1: Oh, I don't know. After last week, I'm not <laughs> sure, but give it a go. I'm ready.
0: Okay. Meliorism, that's M-E-L-I-O-R-I-S-M, meliorism. Do you know what it is? No. Okay, it's quite a nice sounding word. It kind of flows, sounds like it mm. could be related to music, but according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it's a noun, and it's the belief that the world tends to become better or maybe made better by human effort. Mm. So I, I reckon I'm a meliorist. Because I believe in human action to change not only the world but your life. I think it's better to be a meliorist or to practice meliorism than pessimism.
2: Don't you think? Mm, Absolutely.
0: So, meliorism. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Have a listen to Petronella McGovern.
2: My name's Petronella McGovern. I've done four courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm excited to say I'm a published author of a book called Six Minutes, which is a psychological thriller set in Canberra. Before I started the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I was working from home as a writer in marketing communications. When you've got the kids and work and everyday life, then writing often gets pushed to the background. I wanted to do a course that helped me prioritise my writing and put it first. I signed up to the Write Your Novel six month program to kickstart my novel. I had written a few chapters, but I really was not finding the time with work and kids. So the six month Write Your Novel was, as it implies, six months and a weekly class We had deadlines for chapters. We had deadlines to workshop and give feedback. And it really helped give you the support to write a really long piece of work. So when you sit down to look at writing a novel of 100,000 words, it's a large task. And the classes really supported me all the way through that process. The tutor talked about how to structure a novel and then we could look at that in terms of our own novel and see how it would go. It was useful for me to think about where certain things should happen in the novel and how to keep the action going and when to set a climax and when to end the novel. The tutors at the Australian Writers' Centre are so helpful and practical. They're all practising authors and they share their experience and their wisdom very generously with their students. Through the Australian Writers' Centre, I've made lifelong friends who are fellow writers and we're supporting each other through our writing journeys. What I really like about the Australian Writers' Centre is that they have a range of courses and so there are great options for whatever stage you're in. If it wasn't for the Australian Writers' Centre, it would have taken me a lot longer to finish my first draft of six minutes and a lot longer, I think, to get it published. I really enjoyed the feedback and the support that I got through the Australian Writers' Centre, through the tutors and the other people in our class. I would say get started on a course as soon as you can. Find out more
0: at writerscentre.com.au slash novelwriting. All right, so let us move on to our writer in residence this week. I had a great chat with Deborah Oswald, and many people will know of Deborah's work because she is the creator of the super phenomenally successful Offspring. But she has also written for television, including Police Rescue, Secret Life of Us, love that show, Bananas mm. in Pajamas. She's also written, you know, novels and um, uh, has just won lots of literary awards, and her latest book is a cracker. It's called The Family Doctor. Let's have a chat to Deborah Oswald. Thanks so much for joining us today, Deborah. Thanks for having me, Valerie. Deborah, I could not put this book down, and I must admit, you know, when I read, I usually, especially if I'm reading a book that I'm about to interview the author, I jot down questions along the way. I was so sucked into this book that I did not do any of that (laughs) because it was a a page turner.
3: Oh, that's very good to hear.
0: (laughs) Now, for those readers who haven't got the book yet, The Family Doctor, can you tell us what it's about?
3: Well, it's the story of Paula who's a a sort of beloved, dedicated GP in Sydney who is traumatised when she discovers the murdered bodies of her very dear friend and the dear friend's children who've been murdered by the estranged husband. And so Paula is kind of dealing with her trauma about that and her grief that she didn't save them. Mm. And that that sends her into a kind of obsession with wanting to protect other women who might be in similar situations. And she's driven to the point where she contemplates using her medical skills to solve the problem, shall we say.
0: Mm. And how did this idea form for you?
3: Look, it, it started when I was, uh, you know, reading the newspaper yet another day with yet another story of, of a woman being mm. killed and cho- often children being killed as well. And I, I I've sat in that state that I'm sure lots of people also sit in where you you feel kind of anguished and sad and helpless and, and, and furious, mm. uh, full of rage, um, and... And I didn't think it was something I would ever write about because I wasn't quite sure how I would tackle it until I came up with a story idea that gave me the chance to kind of express some of that rage and that very beautiful urge to protect people. Like I think Mm. there's positive forces at play as well as angry forces. Um, But the story gave me a way to sort of go with a what-if daydream about how to respond to that in a way that seemed to me to kind of – express the desperation that a lot of people feel Mm. in a thriller form yes
0: yes and one of the things that really hit me uh about this story and the way it was written um because you know we do read stories about domestic violence and um you know in, in the news but when it's written by a journalist it has to be reported in a certain way and there are certain things that kind of like have to be left out for whether that's legal reasons or just certainly certain journalistic conventions, um, particularly to do with, you know, children and the way in which things occur and, and so on. But when you're writing fiction, you can write it all. And I thought that that was really, really powerful. Was it a hard thing to write?
3: Um, it was look, there were moments when writing this book was was very upsetting mm. um, you know, and I would kind of make myself cry and and mm. sometimes end the day feeling a bit shredded, but I mean nothing compared to people who are actually living with this yeah this 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 sort of issue in their lives day to day um, um, one thing that was quite important to me was although there's a lot of dark tough stuff in the book mm. um, there are also, um joyful things and loving things there's 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 a little bit of humor not as much humor as people would normally expect from me but there's some and there's a love story and there's mm. um it's a story about female friendship yes the power of it and also the difficulties of it sometimes and and I think that's one thing that fiction can do that that a journalistic take on this topic would have to just sort of follow the 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 factual stuff and and some of the um the sort of political issues but but the wonderful thing about tackling with it in fiction is that these terrible things can happen but in the context of the fuller sense of a person's life that they are loving and they have friends and um that that there can be silly moments and Mm. and and in a way that's that to me that's one of the ways that fiction can have a truth to it that nonfiction Mm. can't always have
0: I'm glad you pointed that out because I realized that our jumping off point just then was one of the themes, which was domestic violence, but there are other themes in it, like like the ethical and moral dilemma that this doctor, Paula, finds herself in. How did you work out what kind of dilemmas to put her in and how did you then in terms of her character, determined what her actions were going to take. Did you know a, a, what Paula was going to do from the outset or did you kind of discover Paula as you went along?
3: I'm just being a little bit careful about spoilers here, but it's Ooh. hard to talk about, isn't it, without spoilers? Yes. The, the, the central idea was that here is a woman who is traumatised and full of guilt and whose job every day is to look after people, you know, women and children and people come into her surgery and her job and her calling in life more than just her job is to keep people safe and find solutions to keep them safe. So the the premise that the book started with was what if a woman comes in who is in danger and Paula has the opportunity to use her medical skills to take out the man who is threatening her? And so that, I knew I was going to take her there because that's the kind of inciting incident of the story really Mm. but what I sort of really enjoyed from a writing point of view after that was to see where it would take her like the important thing is that Paula's not a psychopath she's she's in a traumatized state but otherwise she's any one of us she's you or me she's a she's a regular person who, through a sort of particular combination of events crosses the line in a way that she never would normally have done Mm. and so then it was it was really interesting to say well, how would a regular person respond to this? So you've done this, this extreme, mm. terrible thing. You would be afraid. You would be eaten up with remorse, all the things that any one of us would feel if we'd murdered somebody. Mm. Um, and so this, a lot of the book after that is, is about her trying to make moral sense of what she's done and her kind of unravelling because once you're a good person who's crossed the line, it's very difficult to get back to your, your, your sort of former life. Mm. so it's a sort of tragedy really about about this woman who does these things for reasons that I hope when people read the book they understand that the moment that Paula does this first action I hope most people think even if I don't agree with what you've done I get why you're doing it mm. but then what happens you know she she mm. wh- how do you how do you handle your life after that and if you're her best friend mm. What do you do if you find out what your friend is doing? Do you tell? Do you confront her? Um, I, I suppose I'm, I'm not really interested in writing about monsters or, or psychopaths. Mm. I'm interested in writing about all of us, you know, flawed, yes. basically well-meaning people stumbling through life. And these are
0: really real people. these are really real characters. These are people who you would go have dinner at the local Thai restaurant with aren 't they i mean they're yes they <laughs> they they 're just every every woman now with the story uh the you know the way you 've structured it, the way you've plotted it out, did you know from the outset what was going to happen because you have a background in in script writing, you know, you've famously uh, created Offspring and have written many episodes of Offspring. And script writing is a lot more planned because you have to plan so many aspects and collaborate with so many people. But with fiction, you can start writing a novel and not know where it goes. What happened with this book? Do you Did you know from the start what was going to happen?
3: I always try to kid myself that I know, so I always <laughs> try to be um... – Uh, quite structured so I I, you know I'll I'll, whether it's a novel or a script I'll write beats of each story of the story on a file card and lay it out on my dining room table Hmm. and maybe particularly with this one because threading the moral line in it was always going to be something I'd needed to be careful about Mm -hmm. so I tried to make sure that I would end up in a position that was satisfying surprising but satisfying and morally nuanced rather than um, ridiculous um, so but but even so even when you've got what you think are a the beats of the plot all set out for the whole thing when you're writing a particular scene when you're actually imagining your way into that moment with that character then you discover things that you didn't think you would discover because I tend to be quite sort of emotionally immersive I suppose I kind of imagine my way into that scene and 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 I'm almost sort of writing the movie of it in my head and you know getting upset or angry or whatever my character is feeling and in that process you discover things um that oh I see I've got that slightly wrong I actually need to put another beat in before she wouldn't do that at this point or or I suddenly discover um fantastic little things that can that can fit together as if I cleverly planned them Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'm just you know but so moment to moment. I don't quite know how a scene is going to play mm. out, but the, but the big arc of the story for this I had planned.
0: So you did have before you started the idea on your index cards or your you know whatever cards mm. um, planned out. How long did
3: that take to plan the story before you wrote it? Oh, I don't, it's very hard to it's very hard to recall because I would sort of write a bit and then plan. And then occasionally, I'd get so excited about a particular scene, I would run and start writing it. But I wrote this book quite quickly. I mean, mm. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty fast writer anyway, because you know it's the only life I've known. <laughs> <laughs> I just beaver away. But this one came together quite quickly for me because there was something about the the momentum of the story mm. that these characters were kind of stumbling from one action to the other. Yeah, and I and the writing process. Um, followed that that for me really Mm. um I mean I have to stop every now and again and do research so um uh, for this book I spent a bit a lot of time talking to doctors and lawyers and a former coroner and I would go to them and say this is the story I'm planning does that sound roughly right
2: Mm. have
3: I got things wrong how should I adjust it around that so um so that so as I was doing that I guess I was also effectively plotting it in my head so when I sat down with the file cards I'd already made all sorts of decisions
0: mm. so after you had your file cards sorted did you then um uh, write full time and if so how long did that take for first draft and can you tell us a bit about your writing routine on a day-to-day basis
3: so my writing routine is um, I walk the dog, <laughs> which is actually often part of the writing process in that oh, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be story solving or I will harass my partner and make him listen to story <laughs> as we're walking the dog. Um, <laughs> um, and then I'm at the computer um, from, you know, 8.30 or 9 or something depending on the dog walk and I would work, I would work pretty solidly um, until 1.00 Mm-hmm. um drafting or note taking or researching and then the afternoon will vary a bit if i if I'm on a roll I'll keep going but sometimes you've kind of done your dash for that mm. you know the truly kind of creative part of composing mm-hmm. but there's always other jobs to do there's always rereading or research or household tasks yeah so um i i I wrote this book pretty much uninterrupted oh no 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 I tell a lie I I, um, I wrote the first 25,000 words mm. and then my agent sent that out to publishers to say, what do you think? So mm. I then kept going with the writing after that um, while we were waiting to have people's response. Mm. But I'd written that first chunk that would really give people a sense of what the book was attempting in terms of, Plot and tone, um, and but I kept going anyway. I mean, I wasn't going to let anybody's um, reaction to it stop me. Like mm. I was, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. determined to finish it. Um, mm. So, but I had written, um, I had planned it out as a television project initially, um, mm-hmm. um, and I'd, so I would probably plotted out, plotted a fair bit of it out in treatment form. But very early on, I decided, you know what. I'm going to write this as a book because I just, I was really sort of fired up to write it. And I didn't want not just the time delays of television, but also the um, process of being answerable to other people. I just wanted to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it. And I mean, it's an experiment for me. I've never written Murder before, but um, I wanted to do that unencumbered for a while. Yes. And and then see. So I mean obviously with a book you're still answerable in the end because you're answerable to publishers and and readers. But for the actual drafting of it you're just thinking I'm just going to have a crack at this. So how long did the first draft take? I I would say probably there would have been a couple of months to write that first 25,000 words and yeah. then and then maybe another 4 months to finish it.
0: Okay, so um, like 6 months.
3: I guess so, yeah.
0: And then after that and you're presumably, um, the, you secured a publisher during that time, your agent secured mm-hmm. a publisher during that time, and so you, that would have been sent off to them. W- were there many, was there much feedback that surprised, that surprised you? I mean, you're so experienced, I imagine, that it was pretty
3: done. <laughs> but um, But, yeah, tell me. <laughs> I'm just, you know, it's funny you're asking because I actually can't really remember with this book. With other books, I can think of quite specific, um, the sort of what what you consider the big notes. Because often mm. you send you send the the book to usually the sort of fiction publisher that you're working with, and they will give you sort of the big picture structural notes. Yes. Um, and then after you've done another draft in the light of that, then there's the kind of more you know granular yes copy editing um, I'm just trying to remember with this one I don't think there were very many big notes there were mm-hmm. um, um, no I think basically they were pretty happy with a lot of it <laughs> they often often for me because I write fairly tightly mm. they often want me to add stuff mm. they often want more material because I, I'm I come from the sort of television mentality of don't be boring move mm. quickly don't bore people and sometimes I Rush through things. So, so I think the notes were mostly about adding bits and pieces.
0: Right. So, I mean, you do have a background in television. You've written everything from, as we've mentioned, Offspring to Police Rescue to Bananas in Pajamas yes. to Secret Life of <laughs> Us. Um, now, what, how does the process of writing fiction compare with writing, you know, for television?
3: Um, look, the, I mean, the really. Essential stuff like constructing a story that is um, surprising and but plausible, and characters that you care about, which mm-hmm. are the two things that I try to do most. They're the same, no matter what you're doing. Um, they really are, but of course, then the process is so different. I mean, the thing about television is just the um, the collegiate nature of it. That you know, if yeah. you're in a writers' room on a show, which is enormous fun, you have you have the camaraderie at a superficial level but also at a deep level you have that kind of creative fellowship mm. um, and that's wonderful. And then you have sort of clever people coming along and acting it and de- designing mm. it and making it look fabulous. The downside though is that you don't have total control. Um, you have, you're answerable to the network, to producers, to directors, to the weather,
1: mm-hmm. you know, all
3: kinds of things um, and actors who say my character wouldn't say that line <laughs> whereas whereas in <laughs> in in a novel, you know, the characters say whatever I damn well want them to. <laughs> and and at least in the early stages I'm I'm the, I'm the boss of the universe. Mm. Um the, I I do enjoy the language of writing fiction, of writing prose because you um I'm not I don't write flowery prose. I don't I try very hard not to write that kind of prose where it draws attention to itself mm. as writing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm not very precise and I don't agonise about exactly what, what word to choose and, and, and at each moment what information to give and not to give. See, when you write a script, mm. you write the scene of roughly what's happening and what's said but th- the texture of that scene, what people can actually see and quite how a line is said by an actor and what, what we're looking at is decided by a whole lot of other people, mm. by cinematographers and dis- directors and actors and designers. In a, in a novel, I have to decide in a certain scene what level of detail am I going to tell the reader about what we're looking at or how somebody says something. Mm. And there's a million tiny choices and sometimes that's overwhelming and and sometimes you get it wrong, but it's fun, you know, it's a fun <laughs> process. <laughs> Is it more tiring? Um Because you've got a million more choices, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's true. Maybe it is, but then again, wrestling with other people's egos is exhausting in a different way. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, television has its own kind of uh, energy-sucking process. Yes. So did you
0: take us back to did you always want to be a writer and can you just give us a very brief kind of potted career history so people can get an idea of
3: how you got to this point? Sure. So I started writing novels when I was a, te- a little kid, like 10. I mean, <laughs> oh, I called God. them novels. Um, but then I started going to the theatre and I loved it. So I made the switch to theatre when I was 12. Um, and, Precocious, um, had, weren't you? <laughs> well, do you know what? I do think that I started so young that I didn't understand that it was insane. Yes. I didn't understand that it was not what kids did. <laughs> I, I, do, I do think my youth w- was helpful in terms of making me sort of naive, Mm. in a powerful way. Anyway, um, my first, uh, my, a play of mine was workshopped at the Playwrights Conference and I was 17 and that mm. play sold to ABC Radio. So I made professional income from a radio play for, at 17. Wow. Um, and worked and sort of f- supported myself through university, partly writing radio. Um, and I went to the film, so I was writing plays all this time as well. And I went to film and TV school when I first finished uni, so there was a one-year writing course that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from then on, I I made a living writing a mixture of TV and theatre. And um, my first, I wrote a show called Sweet and Sour, which some older people might recall. Love that. Yeah, I was like, yeah, (laughs) I was like twenty-four or something. Um, And and in my late twenties, I started writing children's novels. Um, so I've really for a long time I've I, I did all three you know novels, mm. theatre and um, television scripts. Wow.
2: Um
3: So yeah, I've never had a real job and I bounced between the media for forty years. So on that because you're writing, say sweet and sour,
0: you're writing a novel, you're writing a play. They are you have to well manage your time, but you also have to manage your income, as in your cash flow. What did you, obviously we have been doing it for a while now so you're a bit more comfortable with it, but what advice would you give for people who are doing these short-term gigs, you know, um, and how to be able to do them all well but fit them all in and
3: get a, yeah, get but, a steady income? <laughs> yeah, really good question. I mean I I used to sometimes quite consciously think, okay, I'm writing these episodes of this show. And that will buy me the three months to do a first draft on this play. So I would consciously think I'm going to do these things. Although I've got to say one of the main things you need to learn when you're a writer is how to wait because the people don't get back to you. The waiting is Mm -hmm. endless and it can be soul crushing. Mm -hmm. So one of the sort of um, insurance policies against the despair is to always have a love project, something of your own that you really want to write, so that in the time when you're waiting to hear back on these other things or waiting to get a gig, you you can you can say to yourself, well, at least now I've got this week to work on such and such a script that I love or mm-hmm. book or whatever. Um, I don't look. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know that I have a one really good answer because I've I've stumbled around fighting with. Terrible self doubt and despair, and constantly announcing I'm giving up writing forever, mm. um, because it's just really hard. And 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 I I think sometimes giving you having several things on the go at once mm. is a bit of a is a bit of a kind of um, uh, it's a bit of a protection against against feeling terrible because one thing might be going badly but something else is looking promising, mm. and you just have to sometimes kid yourself that with optimism to keep going mm. um, and and I suppose I think it's really great to work, to take work that's about your craft. So to take um, a gig writing a show that's not your show where you're just trying to fit in with the style of a certain show right? and I think that can teach you all sorts of great things about, it can develop muscles in yourselves that you haven't used in your own work. So I think it's really great to do, you know, that kind of, I don't know what the word is, that sort of professional writer work. Yes. But at the same time, it's really important to always keep a project brewing in your head that is your love project, your the thing that is, that is where, you, where you are at as mm. a creative person at this point in time. And I think people can fall into the mistake of going one way or the other mm. for too long.
0: Mm. So one thing that obviously was very successful for you was Offspring Um, and I know everyone will want me to ask, how did that idea form and did you ever expect it would be so ridiculously phenomenally successful?
3: (laughs) No, no idea at all. (laughs) Um, So it, it, it started because I was so sick of seeing endless television shows with the, the mutilated bodies of women on autopsy slabs, which is funny to say when we're talking about the family doctor where I am mm-hmm. actually killing people. But anyway, mm-hmm. and I felt like there were so many other things that I wanted to see on television about other big forces like birth and love mm-hmm. and family. So I thought, what's the opposite of death? That's birth. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make her an obstetrician. And I wanted to do a big, messy family. And I wanted to do something that would use non naturalistic techniques, you know, that would have thought track and fantasies and flashbacks mm. so I pitched that I put together that idea and I pitched it to a producer who really liked it but every network in the country said no to it so there was a kind of a 20 page document probably at that point so I put that away with all the other dead, dead projects and got on with my life and then nearly four years after that the producer pitched it again to channel 10 the time was right and we got the go-ahead to make a sort of 90-minute telly movie for the Mm. show Um, and that was um, a great stroke of luck and well so many things you know like there's a lot of luck in a television series about the right cast the right creative team and and also um, the the right moment when an audience wants a show like that show Mm. So we made the telemovie and then they did audience testing and all that kind of stuff and then they gave us the green light to make the first series of
2: 13 episodes. Mm.
0: And the rest is history. Well, sort <laughs> of, yeah. So the thing is when you write something like that because you're the cr- c- the creator, but sometimes you write an episode in, in ex- what you just referred to, an episode in an existing show that you did not create, but then sometimes you write plays, sometimes you write for younger audiences, sometimes you write you know, for bananas in pyjamas, sometimes you write crime. What do you do to change gears, to switch hats? You know what I mean? Is there anything in particular you you do to get into the right headspace? Because they do require different approaches.
3: In a way, but I think what I do is I just try, I always imagine who my audience is mm, yeah. or reader. And so if that person is is a four-year-old watching bananas in pyjamas, then I try to think about what that four-year-old is going to want. And when I was writing Bananas, my own children were not much older than that, so I could Mm. kind of remember. Um, When I'm writing this novel, this novel, for example, I I have certain individuals in my life and I imagine I'm writing it for them. Mm. Um, So there's a couple of friends of mine and my two daughters-in-law to whom the book is dedicated. I imagined that I was writing this book for them to read. I imagine them reading it. So I'm always very kind of um, audience or reader focused. And that actually helps you um, jump between age groups and media pretty well because you're Mm. thinking, okay, an audience is sitting in a theatre. What are they seeing? What are they feeling? What would they think is going to happen now? Um, Or someone is watching this episode of Offspring, they're going to have to wait till next week for the next episode. How shall I end this episode Mm. that will leave them buzzing with – with thoughts and feelings, mm. the minute your you focus is on who's going to receive your work, you get out of your own, you can get out of your own way a bit mm. and just do it.
0: Mm. Mm. With, um, with The Family Doctor, what was the most challenging aspect of writing it or the hardest part of writing it, of the experience?
3: Um, I guess it was difficult to make the moral path that Paula takes, um, attra- not attractive is not the right word, but to make it compelling enough that we would go with her, but mm. without without endorsing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, and that's that's a game where where fiction helps because with fiction, your any action is embedded in all the very particular flesh of a character
2: that mm. explains
3: why somebody does what they do. Um, so getting that right was quite difficult. Trying to make it not unbearably sad yeah. was quite important to me. So, I mean, there's a love story in the book mm. and it was important to me that there be in the world of the story that there be the possibility of tender, beautiful, sexy relationships between men and women, mm. um, you know, because that's part of the world that that, is, that we're trying to protect in a way.
0: Mm-hmm. and what's what's next for you what are you working on now
3: um so I'm working on um a television adaptation of the family doctor so I've written um a pilot script and um I'm working with producer Joe Werner awesome on, and yeah well we, you know we'll see
0: <laughs> have you I've already around, I have to ask this because you have a background in television have you already cast it in your head do you
3: know what, though, I haven't because... Don't believe you. <laughs> no, 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 I really haven't because um, I've been a writer for so long and I've had so many things fall over mm. and so many things take years to come to fruition that I I, I I would almost feel that would be jinxing it because anyone who's the right age to play Paula and Anita now may mm. not be in 10 years' time when we finally get the damn thing up. <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 I sort of dare not. Oh, um, that's funny. Um. And and then meanwhile I'm doing um, a one-person show
2: mm-hmm. at the
3: Griffin Theatre next month in April, um, the Griffin Theatre in Sydney um, um, called Is There Something Wrong With That Lady, which is <laughs> basically just me on stage chatting with photos about my hypochondria as a childhood, about my terrible sexual history, about what it's like to be a writer in Australia for 40 years. So at the moment, the main thing I'm doing is desperately trying to memorise a 75-minute monologue.
0: Wow. So (laughs) I can safely say that the vast majority of writers that I know and talk to know quite well would shudder at the thought of getting on stage and doing a 75-minute one-person show. Is this something that, you know, excites you? Do you have a background in performance or is it something that you're just Having a go at.
3: <laughs> I've never done any performing. I mean, I've oh done speaking God. as a writer. Yeah, but sure. A few years ago, um, I was invited to tell a story at an event called Story Club that used to run oh, yeah. at, at a venue called Giant Twelfth. And the first time they asked me, I said no because I thought I'm not a performer. Mm-hmm. I can. I'm happy to speak. I'm. A, I'm a very comfortable kind of, you know, to address people at a book event or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I've never felt I'm a performer. But I did it and it was like rocket fuel it was like really? it was like jumping out of a plane i thought i was going to vomit i was so scared but once i landed on the ground i thought i've never felt so alive oh my um, god and I, and i did i did three more story clubs and i just loved it wow. and so and i tell you what i've had such a sort of disappointing run in the last few years of trying to get stuff made i just felt this incredible urge to Sort of connect with an audience with Mm. no other, nothing in the way. So I, I just want to talk to people directly. So I and Hanny Rayson, who's a playwright based in Melbourne, yeah, did it did a one person show talking about you know her experiences in the theatre, and it was Mm. very enjoyable. And I thought, you know, it was very sort of simple in production terms, Mm. and it worked. And I thought, oh, maybe I could do that. So I went to Lee Lewis, who was then the artistic director of the Griffin, and I said. What do you think? Do you think this is a good idea? And the next thing you know, it was in their season. Right. I cannot wait it, to see it. Then cancelled by COVID. It was meant to be last year. Right. But well. I'm so scared, I cannot tell you, <laughs> the level of stress buzzing through my body at the moment. Why am I putting myself through this? God only knows.
0: <laughs> this, is, this is great. This is great. Okay. And um, finally, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would love to be able to write their novel one day?
3: Um, oh, look, everyone says this, but you have to write lots of stuff. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people think that a novel is going to land in their head Mm-hmm. And they'll just – you have to write a lot of stuff that's no good that you chuck away mm-hmm. or that you look at later and come back and think there's a kernel in there. Mm-hmm. I think one thing I would say is talk to people about your story. I think everyone – a lot of people mm-hmm. feel that that there's a voodoo that you mustn't talk about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But I think sometimes when you story tell out loud to a trusted person, yeah. the story comes alive – because we're natural storytellers, human beings, and you can solve problems and you can identify which bits of your story grab people by telling it out loud to people. Yeah. And then the other thing is is just to be sort of ruthless with your editing. Mm. I'm sure everyone says the same things to that question because because no, quite- they are, they are true. You know? mm. Mm.
0: Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. Well, the family doctor, as I said. I could not put it down. So everyone, get yourself a copy. And thank you so much for your time today, Deborah.
3: Thank you for having me, Valerie. That was great. <laughs> All right, there you go.
0: That was Deborah Oswald. I highly recommend the book. It was really good. It was, you know, it was a page turner. kept you um, guessing, kept you on the edge of your seat. One of the things that um, I like, lo- I really loved about it. Um, I mean, I, the whole book was excellent, but one of the things <clears throat> I really uh, that 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 kind of occurred to me, and that I think Deborah did very well as a writer, and is that she had a couple of, or maybe more than a couple, but a couple that I remember specifically, um, of uh, characters from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, mm-hmm. and one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading it w- that I loved was the fact that they were there, they existed, but she didn't feel the need to explain, over-explain their background because that doesn't Ooh. necessarily happen in real life. No. Um, she, She, you know, didn't have to make that asian character eat rice and she didn't have to (laughs) explain some religious overtone with the muslim character whatever they were just there they were just part of normal life and i thought that was just refreshing Mm. that she didn't have to hit anyone over the head um about it because that's what would happen just in a casual scene in normal life right yep anyway that's just my two cents all right (laughs) what are we doing what
1: are you doing al in the coming week well, I'll be doing my workshop. Um, I'll oh, yes. be just, you know, ferrying children. Um, oh, yes. Just, you know, the usual kind of stuff. I'm, I'm waiting for the edits for uh, Maven and Reeve, The Wolf's Howl, which is the <gasps> second book in the Maven and Reeve series. Um, so I'm just waiting on the copy edit for that. The, the um, publication date is the 3rd of August. Uh, which is exciting and, um, you know, the cover's out there and it's, it's all starting to feel a lot more real. I always yeah. feel better once the copy edit is, is done because, yeah. you know, then you've just got the proofread and you're, you're over the hill and it's almost, you know, it's almost a thing. So, um, yep. Yeah, so I've got to do that. That'll be, that'll be a couple of weeks work. And, um, I'm working on some other new things as well. I've got some new ideas I'm working on and I've got a, um, another, uh, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I've got another manuscript that I wrote last year, um, beginning of last year I think it was, um, and I'm actually just redrafting that as well at the, at the moment. So, you know, there's always something to be done. You're doing oh, I've all got a, the things. Yes, and I've also got a secret project that I'm working on that I'm going to be Ooh. giving some more details about um, hopefully in a few weeks' time. So excellent. stand by, everyone. Excellent.
0: Ooh. Sounds good. All right. What about well, you?
1: Well, what am I doing? You
0: know, I don't. That's a really good question. I've had one of those weeks where I've been a bit scattered, and I need mm-hmm. to go back to, um, actually writing a proper to do list so I can prioritise what I need to do. It's all a right. bit. F- so you'll be, in writing, my brain. A to-do list, you'll be writing a to do list. I will be writing a to do list exactly. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Where do we find you online? Al.
1: You will find me at alisontait.com, a double tcom You will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll
0: find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.